Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I'm happy to be here. I'm your host, Ted Flanagan. And this week I'm joined by Steve Nadell, the Executive Director of the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, ACEEE. I've known Steve for a long time. It's great to have him on the show today. Hey, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. I'm really glad. I'm really glad to have you on. on and I've just introduced you as the uh, Executive Director of ACEEE. And you have been there now for 34 years. Is that right? Uh, yes. You're, you're, you've got to be the longest standing uh, employee of ACEEE. I am. I was employee number four and uh, the other three had since left. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Let's go all the way back. Born and raised where? Uh, outside of New York City, New York City suburbs. Like where? A place called White Plains. White Plains. I mean, I grew up in New York, too. So I, in fact, okay. I was just back in Oyster Bay for, for a couple of weeks. And, and when you were a little kid, uh, what did you think you would be when you grew up? Were you going to be the president or a fireman or what? What were you going to be? Any? Oh, I went through lots of different things. I was interested in astronomy. So I think for a while I was going to be an astronomer. An astronaut? No, I was more the astronomer, you know, looking at t uh, telescope type thing. Yeah. And then and then what uh, high school What was what? Did you get into sports or was it music or what was uh, all sorts of things? Yes, I played soccer. Yes, I started doing some long distance hiking. I got involved in uh, some urban environmental fairs. So by the time I went to college, I was looking for urban and environmental studies. Right. And then off to Westland, right? Correct. Which is uh, in for those that don't I have a lot of listeners in California. So that is that is outside of Hartford? Proxima? In between Hartford and New Haven. In between Hartford and New Haven, right along the I-90. What is Just it? off of I-91, which goes from uh, New Haven up to Vermont and right. eventually Canada. Right. And then at Wesleyan, um, undergraduate uh, government and then- Government. Yeah. And then I, I also did a lot of environmental and urban studies work. They didn't have a major, so I wound up getting my master's in- uh, environmental studies there. And then it was after that that you went to New Haven and worked for this community-based organization, is that right? Yes, exactly. And what was the focus of that group? So that group did housing uh, renovation in inner city neighborhoods. These were tended to be bombed out buildings, you know, that people would buy for a few thousand dollars, needed a total gut rehab. And we would work with the house, the family, who would buy the house for a few thousand dollars, would take out the money to get financing, and we'd prepare the architectural plans, the architectural specs, we'd oversee the contractors, but it was their house from the get-go. And my end of things was designing an energy efficiency package to go into that. So lots of wall insulation, attic insulation, getting a decent heating system as part of this gut rehab. Right, right. And you were already attuned to the value of that from your college days. Exactly. I'd done some energy efficiency work in college. My master's thesis was uh, on soft energy paths in urban areas and how My might you apply that to an urban area? I figured it's easy to do it in a rural area, but what about in a city with high rises, et cetera? <laughs> right, right. Very difficult. And you might have heard of a guy named Amory Lovins back at that time, too. He was making waves, wasn't he? He actually inspired me. He came and gave a talk at our school. And, you know, I was listening. And the friend I went with said, 
That sounds great. How how would it work in cities? I go, good question. There's my thesis. <laughs> he's a he's a neighbor of mine. I still have our house out in, in Snowmass. And uh, oh, okay, yeah, I, I see him. I haven't seen him in about a year now, but I do see him periodically. We see him all the time. It's it's a lot of fun. He's he's just exactly the same as he always was. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as you knew. So you left this community based group. That sounds like a really rewarding job. And and went to um, Audubon. I want to say around Boston. Is that right? Yeah, we were just outside of uh, Boston. And what and was your work? All of Massachusetts. What was your job there? It was to coordinate their energy efficiency activities with a particular focus on urban areas. So most of my work was uh, in Greater Boston, but we did do some stuff in uh, other parts of uh, the state. And when I was trying to remember, I was briefing for this discussion with you, and I, I was trying to remember when I first met you, and I thought you were at Mass Save, but is yep. that I? But you were you were in Massachusetts, but you were not at Mass Save. You were at Audubon at the time, right? So we did lots of work with uh, the city of Boston and community-based groups. We also did a bunch of stuff with the legislature. For example, uh, we helped author the Appliance Standards Bill that helped lead to the national appliance standards bill that was in 86 right right and then you went to the new england electric system um yes and i don't know i'm just trying i was trying to think of the who was there i mean al Destrebaugh and tom foley maybe and oh al uh, big al came after me uh after you okay so what was and then what was your role there i take it you're in the energy efficiency group right they were just starting to expand their energy efficiency programs and they brought me into help plan and evaluate these energy efficiency programs. So I helped develop their first new construction program. I helped evaluate some of their small CNI stuff and design uh, things. I did stuff with water heaters and various other uh, uh, programs, but as they were going from pilots to full-scale programs. Right, and I, that's, that's it must have been a really exciting time in Nice or New England Electric became became a real leader um yeah pg&e in southern california edison out here and new england electric there in boston edison some of the some yeah. of the leading some of the leading utilities i imagine that uh, your ex experience working within a utility has prepared you well to be working with all, all these utilities that you've been working with ever since right exactly no i understand where they're coming from what they have to deal with I could also share a few war stories so they could say, okay, he's one of us, not one of them. <laughs> hey, I don't know if you realize this. I started my career at the New York Power Authority. Oh, yeah. And then I came out here and I was uh, the director of energy efficiency for Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And yeah. you really you really do gain, as I know you did, you really gain an appreciation for the depth of these organizations and the complexity and the uh, and the skill sets that are all brought together to keep right. the lights on is it's kind of a phenomenal machine right and what motivates them and what buttons you have to push and what buttons to avoid you know right. as you are actually which ones to avoid right you're ultimately trying to get the management to say this this make works for us so right. what are the things that are going to motivate them what are their concerns going to be and how can you address them so after New England Electric, what what why did you go to AC Triple uh, What was the what was the draw there? I wasn't looking to move, but I went to the AC Triple summer study and happened to uh, meet the executive director at the time. And uh, um, 
someone was trying to recruit me for another job and he said, oh, if you're thinking of leaving, why don't you work for us? So I interviewed with him and uh, I just liked the idea of going national. I've been working uh, just in Massachusetts and uh, being able to work on a whole bunch of issues. You know, if you're dealing at the state level, you're dealing with one company or one government. And if they don't want to do something, well, what do you do? Well, if you're at the national level and you're working with Massachusetts and they don't want to do something, well, there's, you know, 49 other states. And at any given time, there's always something fun to do that can really make a difference, you know, that uh, they are ready to embrace some change. So Howard Geller really is to be thanked for shaping your your career, right? Yeah. Bringing you, bringing you to ACEEE, getting you away from Boston, all those academics up there. <laughs> and then the right, instead, I'm uh, surrounded by uh, Beltway bandits and all these uh, government officials. Uh, take your pick, right? <laughs> you mentioned the summer study, and I wasn't going to talk about that, but ACEEE put on, and I guess is still putting on every other summer, yeah. uh, out, at, out at Pacific Grove at Asilomar, the Asilomar State uh, campground, I guess it's called there, or state conference facility. But it's just a fantastic conference. Uh, I went several times, people from all over the world would come for four or five or six days. And uh, what incredible networking that took place. And, I, and yeah, it, now, it's still going strong? Oh, it's still going strong. We had more than a 1000 people uh, last year. Uh, yeah, just coming off of COVID. Uh, but yes, even before I joined ACEEE, it was always the one conference I really wanted to go to. I'd always save my best paper topics to submit because my previous employers would generally send me as long as I had a paper accepted. So that was the trick. Right. Yes. For, for many of us. For many of us. So talk about ACEEE. I know it was founded before you got there, but but um, what what was its earliest mission? Uh, and then we'll talk sort of about how the mission is uh, advanced today. Right. So ACEEE helps advance energy efficiency programs, policies, technologies. Originally, it was primarily a research organization. We produce reports on various energy efficiency topics, but reports that would really have application in the real world and not just to sit on uh, shelves. But over the years, we continue to do a lot of research reports, but there's been increasing emphasis on policy adoption, technical assistance, how do we help people to adopt and implement programs and policies where the reports are a foundation, but that is just one of the things we do as opposed to the primary thing we do. Right. So if you had to sort of look back and, and uh, or have a sort of look from above and think about what, what has ACEEE's greatest contribution been? I mean, for yeah, me, it was a lot, of good, a lot of really good information, kind of easy access to information. Yeah. But what do you, how would you answer that question? I would answer that question that our research advocacy and education really helped lead to some path-breaking uh, changes. Uh, we were one of the first ones to talk about energy efficiency, demand side management, energy efficiency resource standards. We're now up to uh, 26 states that have energy efficiency resource standards. We're spending roughly $8 billion a year on energy efficiency. I think we made significant contributions. Many other people did too. Uh, you talk about, we do a lot of work with uh, Congress. So most of the appliance standards we helped enact, whether it was the 
1987 law that added the original appliances and 92, 2005, 2007 and beyond. You know, we're now more than 50 products and just about all of them, our fingerprints are all over it. And then I would note just to wrap that up, the Inflation Reduction Act, which people are doing. We were heavily involved with including such things as the fact that some of the new construction, whether residential commercial tax incentives go up to net zero. That was stuff we worked on. Uh, the homes program, the residential retrofit, other people also worked on that, but we were the ones to say, let's double the incentive for those who are lower moderate income, you know, those types of things. Oh, the industrial provision that was based on a proposal we had that's, you know, almost $6 billion for transformative new industrial processes. That was, you know, by and large, our idea. That's great. That's great. And it's kind of a tough question, but but do you think that solar has sort of taken the stolen the stolen the spotlight from efficiency? I mean, I I go back in the efficiency world a long time in the DSM days, uh, uh, and now solar is so sexy. I guess is so visible. Um, is there has has a, has the renewable have they sort of stolen the spotlight, or is there still adequate support and understanding of the core value of efficiency? Uh, both. And in fact, I'd say very recently, there's even greater support coming. But yes, we've shared a lot of the spotlight with solar and other renewables. Uh, but we like to say they're like peanut butter and jelly. It's hard to do one without the other. <laughs> yes, you can put on uh, solar onto a home or a building, but it will be more expensive if it's an inefficient building. And then if you need a battery backup, it's a larger battery. Uh is it going to have, a, what is this contribution is going to be to peak demand, particularly as we start moving more toward winter peaks as people electrify, we need to really get those loads down or else we're going to have to be building lots of power plants just to operate every two or three years when there's a polar vortex. So we see efficiency incredibly important to complement uh, solar and other renewables, but also as a way to really get down the costs uh, and uh demand as we electrify many end uses yeah well thank you for all those amazing accomplishments and and i i like i really like this discussion of the of the, the peanut butter and jelly um <laughs> and i would say the efficiency has got to precede the solar and you know i'm largely in the solar business out here in california and there's a lot of solar companies that are running around selling their wares not talking about efficiency and, and as consultants we're always trying to make sure that that voting order is is clearer because there is this excitement about solar and there's less excitement about relighting and doing yeah. fantastic stuff that's going on right now with efficiency with leds and heat pumps and controls and i mean the yeah. real continues to go kind of crazy in a good way right yeah exactly now there's a lot of need you do efficiency your house is going to be comfortable even when the power goes out uh you're in california with all those uh, uh Oops, uh, what do they call them when they shut the power off because there's imminent fear of, uh, you know, a fire or something. Well, those, they call those PSPS events, public yeah. power shutoff, which means that you're in, in, a, in a world of hurt uh, because it could go on for a whole week. And the utilities are saying, well, there's high winds. Uh, yeah. And so you're on your own. So good, good point that the, the more efficient a home is, the tighter it is, the more it will maintain uh, its thermal for the thermal temperature. Let's talk decarbonization. It's got to it's it's got to be a huge part of what you're up to now. Absolutely. I mean, all these buildings want to decarbonize, and so all of a sudden we're getting rid of natural gas or heating oils, and we're bringing in heat pumps, and we're jacking up the loads dramatically, right? 
Yes and no. Uh, yes, we're bringing those in. Those are a form of energy efficiency because the heat pump is, uh, you know, quite a bit more efficient than even a condensing gas furnace. Uh, but yes, we do need to do the efficiency to keep those loads uh, uh, down. Uh, you're going to need a lot more power to uh, use a heat pump on an inefficient home than if you make it more efficient. And it's going to be more comfortable, uh, too, because uh, how you feel in a home doesn't depend just on the air temperature, but also the temperature of the surfaces around you and the airflow. And so doing efficiency can make you more comfortable with a heat pump, particularly since the heat pump distribution air temperature is much lower. Um, so you want to do other things to uh, help improve comfort. So we see it as an efficiency as well as, you know, electrification, as well as renewable, as all three critical ingredients of decarbonization. And then you mentioned early off your works with um, weather, weatherizing uh, homes in, in, in and around uh, New Haven and in Connecticut. And so, and, and you can see for new construction, you can see how a heat pump comes in and is already a super efficient device. I, I guess, Steve, I'm concerned about how do you go back into the, how do you go into the retrofit market and not just residential, but especially the, the larger commercial buildings, how do we electrify those? And, and does efficiency become a, a really big piece of that equation? Uh, yes, there are different approaches for different uh, buildings, you know. Yes, if you have a central heating system and you have central air conditioner, it's pretty easy to put in a heat pump the next time the central air needs to be replaced. But let's say you have a hot water boiler. In Europe, there's uh, heat pumps, uh, air to water heat pumps that will heat the water that can just be distributed via the hot water radiators, not via the steam radiators. But uh, the average American home, the uh, radiators are designed for 160 degree water those heat pumps will produce 140 degree water. So you need to weatherize the home to cut the heat loss down so you get enough heat with 140 degree water circulating through uh, those radiators and not 160. Right. And then in uh, commercial buildings, you know, whether it's uh, rooftop uh, heat pump systems, uh, uh, variable refrigerant flow systems, which are effectively large mini splits, or there are chiller size systems that are heat pumps that you can install. And there's different reasons to do different systems in different buildings, but they all are gonna play a role. You sound very optimistic. I am, I'm an eternal optimist. I am too, I share that with you. <laughs> you are. Now, how about, how about electric mobility? Because uh, when I think of the building sector right now, that you're so involved with, um, I think that you, you're, you're adding, we're decarbonizing, we're, we're trying to get rid of all of our fossil fuels. So we're, we're basically adding to the grid, even though we're doing it efficiently, we're adding to the load to the grid. And then you got people like me driving electric vehicles, and then you're adding that load as well. Are you, in, is ACEEE involved with, with that? Yeah, we are quite heavily involved in electric vehicles, uh, some on the passenger vehicles, uh, we primarily focus on how do you bring these vehicles to more disadvantaged areas? Because um, so many other people are working on how do you bring it to, you know, Marin County or something like that. Right. Uh, but we also are doing a lot of work on more medium and heavy duty vehicles, which are uh, more of a, a challenge. But we now have several uh, manufacturers that will are producing electric 18 wheelers 
And uh, we've been working on that. One of the things we uh, contributed to in the Inflation Reduction Act is the first ever incentive, uh, federal tax incentive for uh, uh, medium and heavy duty electric uh, and fuel cell vehicles. So I, I've heard through the grapevine. I haven't talked to him, but I heard when Elon Musk heard about that, he says, OK, we really have to make this Tesla semi uh, uh a product we can sell as opposed to something we just touted, and it's always a year or two away. Right. It was it was like four or five years from the time that they introduced it to now when they're really rolling them out. I guess now Frito right. Frito Lay's has a bunch of, of trucks. But, right. still, but uh, let me just follow up with that for a second. But we get involved in some of the trickier issues. Uh, if for cars, the cars are distributed enough that most of them will get uh, charged overnight that there will be gradual increases in load, but it's not going to be a sudden increase by and large. But with the trucks, if, where you have a fleet and all of a sudden you need to uh, charge, you know, uh, 10, 18 wheelers or 50, 18 wheelers, we are talking tens of megawatts per, and we're encouraging utilities to pay attention to distribution planning to understand where the fleets are, where the truck stops are, and where they really are going to need 10, 20, 40 megawatts of load at a particular point. As a rough rule of thumb, if you have 20 megawatts or more, you need a new substation. So this is not just, you know, run an extension cord. This is major distribution work. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess a household charger, like my household charger is 7KW, Whereas we're working with a school district and they we have an electric fleet down there, down near San Diego, and the chargers are 100 kW. So you start simultaneously powering those babies up. And like you're saying, you got significant load. I wanted to go uh, back. The 18 wheelers are one to two megawatts a pop. Ouch. That's a, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, let's talk just for a moment about the disadvantaged areas. Um, I just heard this term recently, it's probably old hat to you, like this notion of a charging desert, kind of like a food desert where there's no supermarkets, the charging desert where there's no chargers. But um, what are the ways that, and, and that's in part because uh, in a lot of lower income neighborhoods, there aren't, people don't have their own garage, their own parking spot. Um, they're using public parking or they're using a garage with common spaces. But what are some of the ways that, that uh, you see uh, accelerating the adoption of uh, EVs in lower with lower income customers. Right. I mean, a couple of things. One, we have some of these federal uh, dollars for charging, state dollars in some places. We need to make sure they serve all neighborhoods and particularly neighborhoods that there are, as you say, charging deserts. Uh, likewise, utilities are investing in uh, chargers and they should invest in these neighborhoods. I say particularly uh, multifamily is a good uh, thing for them to concentrate on because there's uh, a building, maybe a parking lot or garage with, you know, 50, 100 spaces and make sure that some of them have chargers. Uh, we see uh, uh, Uber and Lyft drivers as a critical early market. These people, by and large, are not super wealthy. Uh, you know, it's a working wage, uh, but they tend to live in lower rent areas and you need chargers for them if, you know, people like Uber and Lyft are pledging, oh yeah, we're going to electrify. Uh, but you have to make sure it works for your current uh, drivers. Makes total sense. What what other, are there other project areas that are, are big in your life that I have omitted from this conversation? 
Uh, yes, let me talk about industry for a second, where we like the tough uh, things. You know, homes are relatively easy. And yes, we do some stuff at homes, but, you know, uh, 18 wheelers or industry is another area that uh, we've been concentrating in more lately. Uh, half of industry's process heat needs are at 160 degrees centigrade or below. There are industrial heat pumps that can get up that high. Can we displace half of the boilers uh, in industry with electric heat pumps? And you know, some of it is getting the heat pump to provide these hot water or steam. You know, 160 obviously is uh, steam, not uh, uh, water. Um, but also, if you design carefully for uh, the actual system, instead of a big steam loop or something, you can save another 20, 30 percent by focusing on things. So how can we really get that process heat load, which is the uh, biggest load in most factories uh, down? Likewise, we're looking at uh, new process technologies to tackle some of the uh, toughest industries. There's direct reduction iron uh, using hydrogen as the a very low carbon way to make steel. Uh, there is uh, uh, inert anode aluminum to uh, dramatically reduce emissions uh, from aluminum production. There are new cements, both the combination materials as well as either uh, you know hydrogen or uh, electric uh, uh, heaters to produce a cement with dramatically lower. Uh, carbon emissions, but we have to systematically go through each of the industries, say, what are the big emissions? What are the opportunities? And we've been trying to do that, working with people in industry, working with people in Congress and DOE to help start making that. And you have a lot of industries now that are pledging to decarbonize by 2050, but a pledge is easy. That's the hard work is how do we get that to happen? And that means that careful work of industrial heat pumps and, you know, inert anode aluminum, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, times uh, hundreds of different processes. And Steve, thanks for all you're doing. It's amazing. It's amazing to hear about. You're, um, you've been uh, inducted to the Energy Efficiency Hall of Fame. <laughs> you've, uh, you've, you have a 40-year career, uh, over 200 publications, lots of uh, testimony and uh, congressional testimony and state testimony. Wow, what a what a what a great run! Um, not that it's over, but what a, what a great run! How are you? How do you keep balance? How do you keep your enthusiasm and the optimism that you mentioned? Uh, we have great staff, so some of it is I love working with the staff and helping people who are younger than me get started in the field and really prosper and grow. I love seeing successes. You know, things like you know the Inflation Reduction Act this last year was a real. Uh, Supercharge. That doesn't happen every year, but it's really nice. And hopefully that gives me several more years of charge uh, to go. Now we're implementing that and, you know, to watch the states and industrial companies, et cetera, be excited about how they can contribute to implementing that. That's uh, really helps. But then I, you know, I believe in working hard, but also uh, taking some time off. Uh, as you may know, uh, a few years ago, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, over uh, four years, just unplugged. Uh, in the high Sierras, there was only one place to uh, get cell phone service the entire uh, two weeks. Happened to be the top of Mount Whitney, where no one was blocking me. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, how great. Good for you. 
Well, Steve, carry on. It's been been great catching up with you. And uh, thanks yeah. so much for all that you're doing and that you will be doing and, and, and to the staff at ACAAA and all the people that made that organization, makes that organization fly. Thank you so much. Have a thank great you, day. Certainly. It's been a great run, but working with people like you. So thank you. Bye, Steve. Okay. Bye. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.